Hey folks, welcome to Law of Self-Defense. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's always very humbling. Today we're starting something special, and that is a reading of an excellent book, The Art of Cross-Examination by Francis Wellman. Um, this book was gifted to me when I graduated law school back in 1990, and it was a fascinating book. It's stood the test of time for sure. Wellman, who was a New York City attorney, published the first edition of this book in 1903. This physical book was printed in 1948. So it's quite an old book. The pages are nicely yellowed. It's a little bit fragile. It's a little difficult to find this book now in hardcover. You may have some luck in softcover. Uh, but I found it really fascinating when I was a newly admitted lawyer to the bar. And I thought... As something special, I'll try doing a reading of this book for the law of self-defense community. Now, the book's divided really into two major parts. There's 26 chapters in total. The first 13 chapters are what I would call substantive chapters, talking, of course, about the art of cross-examination uh, from kind of a, an academic perspective, although it's very, very well taught. Um, and then the last 13 chapters of the book are examples of famous cross-examinations from around the period, of course, in which this book was written. Now, it was updated several times from the first edition in 1903 over the next several decades. I think there were really four, maybe five substantive editions and new chapters were added each time. Uh, so the cases, the case examples, the cross-examination examples from real cases are drawn from a very, very famous trials that occurred in the first half of the last century. Um, but the, the, the skill of the cross-examination in each of those trials was really, really fascinating. So those are worth sharing as well. Some of the chapters here are longer, some are shorter. I'm going to try to do one at a time. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll find it enjoyable enough that it's worth going through the entire book with all of you. So I will say, of course, since the book is old, some of the language, the writing style is quite dated. Hopefully that will be enjoyable as well. And unfortunately, I do have to put my reading glasses on to read the book. So let's start today uh, with the first chapter of this book, entitled simply Chapter One, Introductory. But before that, here's a word from the sponsor of today's show. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to have a lawyer-like understanding of the many high-profile trials and legal issues we cover, well, I've got exciting news. Our very own American Law Courses offer a wide variety of law school-level courses, including the foundational courses all lawyers take in their first year of law school at a fraction of the cost and time of law school and without the toxic political environment that so pervades law schools today. At American Law Courses, we simply teach traditional American law in the traditional American way to help Americans become the best informed, most capable citizens they can be. We have a broad curriculum of courses, including criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, property, constitutional law, and more. All courses are taught on a semester basis, roughly one live-streamed class a week for 14 weeks with an optional final exam for certification at the end. Every class is taught by a genuine legal expert in the respective subject, and because the classes are live-streamed, there's plenty of opportunity for real-time interaction and Q&A with the professor. If you can't make a particular class for some reason, no worries. 
every class is also made available as a recorded playback, and you have access to that recording for a full year. We're currently in the pre-registration period for the spring 2023 semester, which starts the second week of January. And during this pre-registration period, you can save 50% on any and all American law courses. That's a savings of over $1,000 a course. So if you'd like to learn more, now would be the time to do so. Learn more about our American law courses, access the syllabus for each course, view interviews with our professors, and much more by simply pointing your browser to AmericanLawCourses.com today. All right, folks, we're back. We're back with the reading of The Art of Cross-Examination by Francis Wellman, a New York City attorney around the turn of the century, the last century, not this century. Fascinating stuff. We're going to start with the first chapter, entitled simply Chapter 1, Introductory, and I'm afraid I do need reading glasses in order to read. So it starts with a quote. Quote, The issue of a cause rarely depends upon a speech and is but seldom even affected by it. But there is never a cause contested, the result of which is not mainly dependent upon the skill with which the advocate conducts his cross-examination. Close quote. This is the conclusion arrived at by one of England's greatest advocates at the close of a long and eventful career at the bar. It was written some 70 years ago, and at a time when oratory and public trials was at its height. It is even more true at the present time when what was once commonly reputed a quote-unquote great speech is seldom heard in our courts. The modern methods of practicing our profession have had a tendency to discourage court oratory and the development of orators. The old-fashioned orators who were wont to grasp the thunderbolt are now less in favor than formerly, though there will always be a high place in the profession for the man who speaks good English. With our modern jurymen, the arts of oratory, law papers on fire, Lord Brougham's speeches used to be called, though still enjoyed as impassioned literary efforts have become almost useless as persuasive arguments or as a summing up to use the modern term. Present-day juries, especially in large cities, are composed of practical businessmen accustomed to think for themselves, experienced in the ways of life, capable of forming estimates and making nice distinctions, unmoved by the passions and prejudices to which court oratory is nearly always directed. Nowadays, jurymen, as a rule, are wont to bestow upon testimony the most intelligent and painstaking attention, and have a keen scent for the truth. It is not intended to maintain that juries are no longer human, or that in certain cases they do not still go widely astray, led on by their prejudices, if not by their passions. Nevertheless, in the vast majority of trials, the modern jurymen, and especially the modern city jurymen, and it is in our large cities that the greatest number of litigated cases is tried, comes as near being the model arbiter of fact as the most optimistic champion of the instruction of trial by jury could desire. Now I'm going to pause here a moment, folks, speak in my own voice, to note and remind all of you that this was written, the first edition of this book, in 1903. This is not my personal experience of modern-day jurors in the current century. So this lawyer, Wellman, in New York City, around 1903, obviously had a different experience than we have today. Okay, back to the book. I am aware that many members of my profession still sneer at trial by jury. Such men, however, 
when not among the unsuccessful and disgruntled, will, with few exceptions, be found to have had but little practice themselves in court. They may also belong to that ever-growing class in our profession who have relinquished their court practice and are building up fortunes such as were never dreamed of in the legal profession until this century by becoming what may be styled business lawyers, men who are learned in the law as a profession, but who through opportunity combined with rare commercial ability have come to apply their learning, especially their knowledge of corporate law, to great commercial enterprises combinations, organizations, and reorganizations, and have thus come to practice law as a business. To such as these, a book of this nature can have but little interest. It is to those who by choice or chance are or intend to become engaged in that most laborious of all forms of legal business, the trial of cases in court, that the suggestions and experiences which follow are especially addressed. And here again, folks, in my own voice, uh, this is even more true today. Uh, We all imagine lawyers as being people who go to court all the time. Uh, But trial lawyers make up something like 3% of lawyers admitted to practice before the bar. So most lawyers are not going to trial with any frequency, even today. And obviously, he's reflecting that's the case here. In fact, he'll speak in a moment about uh, the fact that in uh, the United Kingdom, they put lawyers in one of two buckets. Uh, Lawyers who are trained and experienced and skilled at arguing in court and lawyers who give clients advice out of court, barristers and solicitors, respectively. Um, We don't do that in America. In America, lawyers are both. Uh, And that's probably a mistake because it's a different skill set for each. Okay, back to the book. It is often truly said that many of our best lawyers I am speaking now especially of New York City, are withdrawing from court practice because the nature of the litigation is changing. To such an extent is this change taking place in some localities that the more important commercial cases rarely reach a court decision. Our merchants prefer to compromise their difficulties or to write off their losses rather than enter into litigations that must remain dormant in the courts for upward of three years awaiting their turn for a hearing on the overcrowded court calendars. And yet, fully 10,000 cases of one kind or another are tried or disposed of yearly in the borough of Manhattan alone. This congestion is not due to the fact that there are too few judges or that they are not capable and industrious men, but it is largely, it seems to me, the fault of the system in vogue in all our American courts of allowing any lawyer duly enrolled as a member of the bar, to practice in the highest courts. In the United States, we recognize no distinction between barrister and solicitor. We are all barristers and solicitors by turn. One has but to frequent the courts to become convinced that so long as the more than 10,000 members at the New York County Bar all avail themselves of their privilege to appear in court and try their own clients' cases, the great majority of the trials will be poorly conducted and much valuable time will be wasted. The conduct of a case in court is a peculiar art for which many men, however learned in the law, are not fitted. And where a lawyer has but one or even a dozen experiences in court each year, he can never become a competent trial lawyer. 
I am not addressing myself to clients who often assume that because we are duly qualified as lawyers, we are therefore competent to try their cases. I am speaking in behalf of our courts against the congestion of the calendars and the consequent crowding out of weighty commercial litigations. One experienced in the trial of causes will not require, at the utmost, more than a quarter of the time taken by the most learned, inexperienced lawyer in developing his facts. His case will be thoroughly prepared and understood before the trial begins. His points of law and issues of fact will be clearly defined and presented to the court and jury in the fewest possible words. He will, in this way, avoid many of the erroneous rulings on questions of law and evidence which are now upsetting so many verdicts on appeal. He will not only complete his trial in shorter time, but he will be likely to bring about an equitable verdict in the case which may not be appealed from at all, or, if appealed, will be sustained by a higher court instead of being sent back for a retrial and the consequent consumption of the time of another judge and jury in doing the work all over again. These facts are being more and more appreciated each year, and in our local courts there is already an ever-increasing coterie of trial lawyers who are devoting the principal part of their time to court practice. A few lawyers have gone so far as to refuse direct communication with clients, excepting as the clients come represented by their own attorneys. We are thus beginning to appreciate in this country what the English courts have so long recognized, that the only way to ensure speedy and intelligently conducted litigations is to inaugurate a custom of confining court practice to a comparatively limited number of trained trial lawyers. The distinction between general practitioners and specialists is already established in the medical profession and largely accepted by the public. Who would think nowadays of submitting himself to a serious operation at the hands of his family physician instead of calling in an experienced surgeon to handle the knife? And yet the family physician may once have been competent to play the part of surgeon and doubtless has had years ago his quota of hospital experience. But he so infrequently enters the domain of surgery that he shrinks from undertaking it, except under circumstances where there is no alternative. There should be a similar distinction in the legal profession. The family lawyer may have once been competent to conduct the litigation, but he is out of practice. He is not in training for the competition. There is no shortcut, no royal road to proficiency in the art of advocacy. It is experience, and one might almost say experience alone, that brings success. I am not speaking of that small minority of men in all walks of life who have been touched by the magic wand of genius, but of men of average endowments and even special aptitude for the calling of advocacy. With them, it is a race of experience. The experienced advocate can look back upon those less advanced in years or experience and rest content in the thought that they are just so many cases behind him that if he keeps on with equal opportunities in court, they can never overtake him. Someday, the public will recognize this fact. But at present, what does the ordinary litigant know of the advantages of having counsel to conduct his case who is at home in the courtroom, and perhaps even acquainted with the very panel of jurors before whom his case is to be heard, through having already tried one or more cases for other clients before the same man? How little can the ordinary businessman realize the value to himself of having a lawyer who understands the habits of thought 
and of looking at evidence, the bent of mind of the very judge who is to preside at the trial of his case. Not that our judges are not eminently fair-minded in the conduct of trials, but they are men for all that, oftentimes very human men. And the trial lawyer who knows his judge starts with an advantage that the inexperienced practitioner little appreciates. How much, too, does experience count in the selection of the jury itself, one of the fine arts of the advocate? These are but a few of the many similar advantages one might enumerate. Were they not apart from the subject we are now concerned with, the skill of the advocate in conducting the trial itself once the jury has been chosen? When the public realizes that a good trial lawyer is the outcome, one might say, of generations of witnesses, when clients fully appreciate the dangers they run in entrusting their litigation to so-called office lawyers with little or no experience in court, they will insist upon their briefs being entrusted to those who make a specialty of court practice, advised and assisted, if you will, by their own private attorneys. One of the chiefs One of the chief disadvantages of our present system will be suddenly swept away. The court calendars will be cleared by speedily conducted trials. Issues will be tried within a reasonable time after they are framed. The commercial cases, now disadvantageously settled out of court or abandoned altogether, will return to our courts to the satisfaction both of the legal profession and of the business community at large. Causes will be more skillfully tried the art of cross-examination more thoroughly understood. So that's the end of the first chapter, introductory folks. And I could not agree more. Certainly this um, observation of the disparate skills of different lawyers, that lawyers are on a bell curve and some of them are world-class and others are not. And most of them are somewhere in the middle. Most of them have very little actual trial experience. And the reality that the client is generally not sufficiently an informed consumer to know what they're hiring when they're hiring a lawyer. They just imagine that all lawyers are adequately trained to argue in court. It's simply not the case, unfortunately, much to the detriment of the lawyer. And he mentions in here as well that many trial lawyers were beginning to not take cases where they were dealing with the client directly. In other words, the client who had some legal issue would retain a local attorney. And then if the case had to go to trial, that local attorney would reach out to an actual professional trial attorney to actually try the case in court, advised by the local attorney initially retained by the client. But that local attorney would not be the advocate in the courtroom. Not a bad system, folks. It's how they do it in the UK, as we just talked about. All right, I'm going to sign off now with that first chapter, but look forward to chapter two in our reading of The Art of Cross-Examination by Francis Wellman. Until then, folks, remember, if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, that's why I carry a gun so I'm hard to kill, so my family is hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain Attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to have a lawyer-like understanding of the many high-profile trials and legal issues we cover, well, I've got exciting news. Our very own American Law Courses offer a wide variety of law school-level courses, including the foundational courses all lawyers take in their first year of law school at a fraction of the cost and time of law school and without the toxic political environment that so pervades law schools today. 
At American Law Courses, we simply teach traditional American law in the traditional American way to help Americans become the best informed, most capable citizens they can be. We have a broad curriculum of courses, including criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, property, constitutional law, and more. All courses are taught on a semester basis, roughly one live-streamed class a week for 14 weeks with an optional final exam for certification at the end. Every class is taught by a genuine legal expert in the respective subject, and because the classes are live-streamed, there's plenty of opportunity for real-time interaction and Q&A with the professor. If you can't make a particular class for some reason, no worries. Every class is also made available as a recorded playback, and you have access to that recording for a full year. We're currently in the pre-registration period for the spring 2023 semester, which starts the second week of January. And during this pre-registration period, you can save 50% on any and all American law courses. That's a savings of over $1,000 a course. So if you'd like to learn more, now would be the time to do so. Learn more about our American law courses, access the syllabus for each course, view interviews with our professors, and much more by simply pointing your browser to AmericanLawCourses.com today.